Guide me in your truth and teach me. Get your lunches. I don't know where my shoes are. It's like 50 days of not knowing. Love you. You love me too. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you. Hello? Hey. Your lunch. Oh, buddy. Protein box and a grande iced Americano, please. Double shot. Hey guys, how was school? Are you still in your pajamas? This is math now. Honey, do you know him? You need a bath tomorrow. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Oh, no doubt there are seasons of life seasons of parenting uh, that tend to pull our attention away from what we want to pay attention to. And at the same time, I wonder, even as I watch that video, if not during all the chaos that's going on in one's life, uh, God's presence is so very real in that, that in, a, in, a, in the truest sense, when we are conscious of him, we are worshiping him. When we're, when we're cleaning a bottle or when we're running a lunch to school, I can't tell you how many times we got that call and <laughs> off to run the lunch to For school. Shelley. For Shelly, of yeah. course, right. So, so yeah, never. Not too long ago, um, I, had, I got a text from a friend who was uh, struggling a bit with a, with a 12-year-old, an, an, an emerging adult that emerging adult said something that was incredibly unkind. I mean, just the kind of thing that I know years from now they're going to look back and say, Mom, I'm so sorry. I don't know how in the world I could have been so cold, so cruel. And in that moment, I thought, oh, I've got just the thing for you. And I sent her a reading that we've done more often than not on Mother's Day. And so I thought this morning would be good for, for Brian to go ahead and read that to us. This is when children turn into cats. <laughs> Have you ever realized children are like dogs? Loyal and affectionate, but teenagers are like cats. It's, it's so easy to be a dog owner. You feed it, train it, boss it around, and yet it still puts its head on your knee and gazes at you as if you were a Rembrandt painting and bounds indoors with enthusiasm when you call out for it. Then, around age 13, your adoring little puppy turns into a cat. When you tell it to come inside, it looks amazed, as if wondering who died and made you emperor. <laughs> Instead of dogging your every step, it disappears. 
You won't see it again until it gets hungry. Then it pauses on its sprint through the kitchen long enough to turn its nose up at whatever you're serving. Mm-hmm. When you reach out to ruffle its head in that old affectionate gesture, it twists away from you, then gives you a blank stare, as if trying to remember where it has seen you before. You, not realizing that the dog is now a cat, think something must be desperately wrong. It seems so antisocial, so distant. It won't go to family outings, and since you're the one who raised it, taught it to fetch and stay and sit on command, you assume that now you've done something wrong. Flooded with guilt and fear, you redouble your efforts to make your pet behave. Only now, you're dealing with a cat. So everything that worked before now produces the opposite of the desired result. Call it, and it runs away. Tell it to sit, and it jumps on the counter. The more you go toward it with open arms, the more it moves away. Instead of continuing to act like a dog owner, you should learn to behave like a cat owner. Put a dish of food near the door and let it come to you. Sit, <laughs> sit still, and it will come, seeking that warm, comforting lap that it has not entirely forgotten. But there to open the door for, be there to open the door for it. And just remember, one day, your grown-up child will walk into the kitchen, give you a big kiss, and say, you've been on your feet all day. Let me do those dishes for you. Then you realize that your cat is a dog again. <laughs> and one day, your dog will have puppies. And those puppies will turn into a cat. And you'll say, Yeah! Father God in heaven, we are grateful for this universal truth. Every person in this room came into this world because of someone that they can call mom. We are grateful for the mothers that you gave us and for this reality that because we are created in your image, you are a good, good father and you have so many of the characteristics that we find in our mothers as well. We thank you that you do push that, put that dish by the door and you wait for us to patiently come home. You don't always force us. But God, you, you allow us, even in our rebellion, even, even when we stray, to have the opportunity to choose to come back home. We're grateful for that. Part of you that is such a beautiful expression of the beautiful women in our lives. And so we say thank you to you today. Thank you for the mothers you gave to us And thank you for the privilege of uh, knowing you as a person who is both a good father and a person who displays so many of the beautiful qualities of a great mother. In Jesus' name, amen. I would encourage you uh, before the day is done to head on over to the connecting space between this building and the new building. On the floor, we've been writing prayers And I'll tell you what, I can't help, I just can't help it. I'm reading these, and I know they're to God, okay? I know that these are prayers to God, but they're not very private. We get to see them. And as I'm reading these prayers, I just can't help but imagine the smile that comes across God's face again and again and again as he looks at the words that have been expressed, many by our children. I mean, just absolutely beautiful prayers. So make sure you do that. And as you do, I get, I'll bet you're going to get a sense of what it's like for, for God to just uh, re- receive those expressions of gratitude.
Uh, we, as we move into our time of communion, every week we do this, this soul care question. And, and the one that we're bringing into this week from last week is, am I defeated in any part of my life? And you know what? The reality is there's probably some part of all of our lives that we feel a sense of, of loss, a sense of, uh, but we had hoped and the hope didn't come true. A sense of, man, I just, I wish this was a little different. And the question isn't given there to just kind of brood in, in sadness, but it's really given to us to remind us that we don't have to live in that place of defeat. That we do have a good, good father who cares for us. That we have a, we have a father who, who loves us like the most faithful of mothers. And so this morning, uh, as we take the time with this question to just sit with it in silence, think about that area of defeat. But would you, would you also imagine yourself just saying, and God, it's yours. It's yours. Help me with this. It's yours. Once our time of silence is done, we'll move to one of the four stations around the room for communion, two in the back, two in the front. Take bread and cup and be reminded of the goodness of your wonderful Father in heaven. Again, we are so glad to have you here celebrating uh, with us on Mother's Day. As, um, as we get started with our announcements, our servers are going to receive the morning offering. 
at this time. Uh, and we're going to be going through our announcements through the links. Uh, the links is an email that we send out at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning that you can sign up for by going to the church website, scrolling all the way to the bottom and hitting that blue plus sign and entering your email, or by heading out to the welcome desk and getting signed up today. If you have the links, pull out your phone and follow along. Today, uh, you'll see that the top link is for Quest Camper Registration. That's already rolling, and we are so excited to see uh, how many kids are going to come to know more about God uh, through Quest this year. A lot of crazy planning going on. I know the skit team is already reading and getting ready for, uh, for everything for those kids, so make sure that you're getting those invitations out to, to families who have those kids that are Quest age uh, so we can get them in the doors here. We also have Omega registration up for our high schoolers. Again, if you are entering ninth grade this fall or leaving for college, anywhere in there, you are eligible to go, to, to go on this trip. We go with Manuka, the students from Manuka Bible, Grace Bible, and then a church in Wisconsin. Uh, and we are just, we're pumped. This, this year, uh, we've, we've mixed some things up. The teach is going to be very different. Uh, and so we, we would love for all of our high schoolers to come with us up to Baraboo, Wisconsin, and spend that I think it's, it's Thursday to Sunday instead of the normal like, week-long thing that we do. So again, it's, it's a really cool trip. You, if you click on that link to sign up, it'll actually send you to a website called omega2018.com, and you'll scroll through, and it, we've made it super easy. You go, just click on all the Southfield links. There's no paper to turn in this year. It's all online, uh, so make sure that you get signed up for that today. In order to help us with our June series, we've continued to ask a new question each week because our June series is going to be based on the questions that you have about God, about our church, about uh, the things that you have, uh, the questions that you have about faith. So this week, our question is, my friend asks me blank about the Bible, God, religion, church, etc. So whatever questions that your friends have been asking you or, you know, that those burning questions that you still have, go ahead uh, fill out that questionnaire. Let us know what questions you have so that we can get that June series um, all set. We have another link up this week. If you're interested in getting baptized this summer, there will be two opportunities for that. Um, and, and that's what we've got for today. Now, before I let you go and before we start our service, um, moms, I love you. Okay, I love each and every one of you. However, um, not all of you are so great when it comes to these things. And I want to give, some of you are like better than me, all right, I'll admit that, but in my house, my mom, who I love very, very much, struggles with anything where you're swiping or touching or anything basically that you require sight for. Um, <laughs> so I want to give you a little picture into what life is like at the PAP house when my mom tries to use technology. Way too true. Holy cow. I just, you know, for all my friends over 50, five emojis per text. No more, okay? We got we to gotta go give up for Lent emojis or something. Oh, my word. Well, our house, yeah, that's a piece of our house. The other piece of our house that's kind of fun is that our family, um, our family likes doing puzzles. At least some of us do. We get into jigsaw puzzles. Any of you like the whole jigsaw puzzle thing? That's kind of your thing. You get that box, and whether it's 250, 500, 1,000, whatever pieces, oh, man, it's a lot of fun. I mean, we enjoy them. Uh, it seems like there are a lot of, when it comes to puzzles, uh, there are habits that form around them. You might have your favorite card table. That that's, that's the puzzle card table. That's the one that gets pulled out. 
It may be that um, puzzles get pulled out for holidays. That's the, that's the Fry family habit. You know, whether it's Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, there was a puzzle all the time. Uh, through the years, it ended up being Thomas Kincaid puzzles. We were always uh, putting together one of, those, one of those paintings that he had done. Uh, there are also some, some funny habits when it comes to puzzles. Uh, this just kind of happened informally in our clan, but a piece would always disappear, inevitably. Somebody would come early on, somebody would come early on and take one piece and put it in their pocket because they wanted to make sure, number one, that they messed with everybody's head, but also that they had complete control in putting the last piece in the puzzle. Yes, on the podcast, I am pointing to my right to the boy sitting next to the beautiful wife. Anyway, here's my question for you today when it comes to puzzles. Do you look at the box or not look at the box? Are you one of those people that says, looking at the box is cheating, mortal sin, I will not look at the box? Or are you like me, who thinks there is no sin when it comes to looking at the box? And I take that piece and I literally go all over the box trying to find, and there it is. And even before the pieces are down, I'm like, that's where it's going to go, right there, right there. We had a couple family, my mom loves doing puzzles, but the one I loved most watching was Kim's great uncle Jack. This guy, you know, he's, he's in his 80s and he would, he would pick up a piece. It didn't matter if it was the right color or the right shape. He'd just pick it up and experiment. Dink, 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 not that one. Take him like seven years to do a puzzle. It was crazy. I like looking at the box and I suspect you do too. Life is a lot like a puzzle, isn't it? We have one piece in our hands. One piece, and we're trying to figure out how in the world it fits into the bigger picture. How does, it, how does, how does what I'm going through today, right now, fit into the bigger picture of the entirety of my life, and for that matter, the entirety of the human race and existence? I, I believe this is a piece of what Jesus is doing for us today as we look again at Luke 24. Jesus joins this pair. They're walking on the road from Jerusalem to their hometown, Emmaus, about seven miles. As they're walking, they're reviewing the tragic events of the crucifixion, the fact that this person that they loved had died. And not only that, they're talking about the stunning news that earlier that morning, some of the women from their group went to the tomb, found the tomb empty, and then saw an angel, and the angel said, he's risen. And some of the men ran and said, yes, the tomb is empty. So they're walking, and they're walking in distress. Their hopes have been dashed, and they're just trying to make sense of it all. And while they're talking, Jesus joins them on the road. And God supernaturally veils the identity of Jesus from them. So he joins them as a stranger, and they welcome this total stranger into their conversation. I believe this is such an instructive moment for us. Jesus helps us to understand how to walk with people especially in their pain and their bewilderment. What do you say? What do you do when a friend has lost hope? You see, our natural tendency is to fill the space with words. It's to explain. We may even commiserate, and we commiserate by telling them how we dealt with this when we went through that particular part of our journey. Sometimes we even spiritualize a bit. God knows best. Romans eight twenty eight. everything will work out together for good. But you know what? Jesus does neither. Though he had every answer and could have solved the mystery in a heartbeat, thank you, he does two vital things. 
He listens and he asks questions. This was important. And why was it important? Because the disciples themselves needed to put their finger on their pain. And in doing so, they would be able to identify their deepest desire. So much is wrapped up in their words, but we had hoped. Their dashed hopes reveal their truest hearts, their deepest longings, that peace in them that could be identified as desire. Well, the walk comes to a conclusion. They arrive at home in Emmaus. Jesus seems to want to keep walking, but the hour is late, light is fading, and so he invites them to stay the night. They invite him to stay the night. There is a literal and a figurative beauty in this. They let Jesus into their life one layer at a time. And this is what we do when we walk with Jesus. We keep letting him in a little further and a little further and a little further. Once inside, they share communion together. There's a breaking of bread and their eyes are wide open. The disciples acknowledge after Jesus is gone, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. He talked with them on the road, and he explained the scriptures to them. What did he explain? Well, for one, he detailed the necessary and natural way of the spiritual journey. He said, suffering is a piece of the path. Get used to it. Suffering is a piece of the path. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? By the way, you could replace the word the Christ with the Messiah. That's the word they are hearing. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer? Necessary. Not accidental, not plan B. Necessary. And in this, Jesus reveals the nature of our spiritual walk. Death, burial, resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. It happens again and again and again. The seed falls into the ground to produce a greater harvest. By the way, my cucumbers are coming up. The seeds went into the ground, and it's amazing. They came up in like record time. I have to decide, actually, which ones to thin. I always hate that part. But I am looking forward. I am looking forward to the dozens and dozens of cucumbers I will eat instead of just sucking on that one seed and saying, well, that was not even a meal. The seed has to fall into the ground in order to produce the greater harvest. So that brings us to verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And it is in this that Jesus does for his two friends what is so vital as true spiritual companions. He helps them locate their story within the context, the much greater context of the big big story, the story of redemption. Please understand that this goes far beyond just throwing a, a few favorite verses out there or, or, or relaying some spiritual trite quotes. He really breaks it down. He interprets their experience within the context of the bigger picture. And we need that sometimes. We need that a lot of times. How does what I am experiencing in life today fit into the bigger plan that God has for my life? Jesus decides the time is right to locate what they've been going through 
in the larger picture of what God has been doing throughout all of history. So he uses words written by Moses and David and Elijah and others. And he takes that one small piece and puts it in its proper place in the cosmic puzzle. He helps them to see that the something they're going through that felt so very personal to them was actually part of the bigger picture of what God had been doing for a long time. Who knows, he might literally have taken them back to Genesis 3 and talked about the serpent biting the Messiah's heel and then the Messiah taking that same heel and crushing the serpent's head. This plan had been in place for a long time. What happened that weekend was not an accident or a surprise to God. I really do believe one of the things Jesus had to do with these two people is help them to understand the identity of the Messiah. Who is this person they had known and wanted to come the Messiah? Messiah for the Jews had become a a conquering hero, a warrior. He was going to free his people from captivity. And you know what? Every word I just said is absolutely true. They just had a skewed perspective of those words. The Messiah was to be a conquering hero. He was to be a warrior. However, his role was much greater than taking on the Romans. He was going to do battle with the ultimate enemy of human souls, Satan himself. He was going to free his people from captivity. But the captivity was far greater than the oppression of a human government. It was freedom from sin and death and hell itself. Jesus needed to redefine Messiah for them. And this is what we need sometimes too. Sometimes we need redefinition. Sometimes we've been thinking something works a certain way or is a certain way. And we need someone to companion with us and say, I hear what you're saying, but we might have all the facts right. We're just interpreting them incorrectly. I've been working my way through a book with a group of friends, a journey group, and the book is called Life Without Lacked. The last chapter provides, uh, the last chapter we just looked at provides a good example of what I mean. The author had a line, and he was talking about Job and the suffering that Job went through. Listen to this paragraph. He says, keep in mind that God did not say that Job was wrong in what he said, but that he did not understand what he was saying. We are often like this, correct in what we are saying without understanding its meaning or significance. Teachers know what it is like to have a student who has the right answer, but does not have the foggiest idea what he or she is saying. My math teacher daughter would concur. This is why you don't just give the answer, but you show the work. We've got to see, do you understand how you're getting there? Oh, this is so true in life. And it is why we need wise spiritual friends to companion with us. We might have all the right lines. We might know all the right verses. We might even spout the right theology. But we have no sense of what it really means in the context of our current walk. In this chapter that our group studied last week, the author works his way through three stages of faith. 
I'm not going to walk through all three this morning. But the first provides, I think, a beautiful example of what I mean in terms of helping a person to see what they're saying correctly, but they're not quite understanding yet. He worked through the the story of Job, and he states that Job had a faith of of propriety. It it helps to understand what propriety is, right? It's the state or quality of, of conforming to conventionally accepted standards of behavior or morals. It's the details or rules of behavior conventionally considered to be correct. It's the condition of being right and appropriate and fitting. A person of propriety does the right thing the right way as a rule of life. They are a person who's always doing the right thing the right way. That is propriety. If they are living out a faith of propriety, they're doing the right thing the right way expecting that such action will lead to God's blessing and God's reward. It's a very transactional view of faith. Put in a quarter, get a gumball. You know that if you do this, you will automatically get this result guaranteed. Do the right thing, get the right result, get the right reward. It is a faith that tends to be, in the book said, very ritualistic and superstitious. It is regimented and it is predictable. Basically, Job trusted God to be good to him if he, Job, lived a proper and upright life. Now, what's the problem with that perspective? If, if Job is your friend and you're trying to help walk him through why in the world he's in the middle of suffering right now, even though he's lived a faith of propriety, upright, he's done the right thing the right way, and yet he's not getting the right result, what do you say? Well, first of all, as we look at this, what's the problem with this faith? It's twofold. First, in reality, he was trusting in his own propriety rather than trusting in God. And that sometimes is what we need to hear, right? That, that we're, yeah, we're saying the right things, but we're not quite there yet. Have you had that with your kids? That they're parroting the right words and you're like, yeah, you're saying the right thing, but, but I know you're not believing the right thing. I know you're not quite there yet. The other thing that's a problem with this faith is that we just know it's not true. It's not the way it works. If, if you've lived long enough and observed enough patterns, you know that the person who does the right thing the right way does not always get the expected result or reward. I've known people who worked hard and played by the rules, who never got ahead. They were always in a hole. I've known students who studied really hard, set aside fun, And didn't get the A. I've known parents who parented as perfectly as a human can parent. And their kid landed in jail. Addicted. And ultimately died. I've known spouses who served and sacrificed. Just like they said in their vows. Who were abandoned by the one they loved. I've known people who prayed and fasted. And still died of cancer. I've known couples who would make the best parents ever. And they never had that child that they wanted so much. And you know what? The opposite is also true. I've known people who cheat and they advanced and advanced and advanced. I've known undisciplined students who made the dean's list every quarter. I was one of them. (laughs) I've known bad parents who've raised stellar kids. I've known undeserving husbands and wives who have 
loyal and devoted spouses. I've known people with incredibly unhealthy habits who beat terminal diagnoses. I've known neglectful people who have a litter of children. All this to say faith is not a transaction of faithfulness. I do the right thing. I get the right thing. So you might ask, why do right? And again, this is something as I'm, as I'm walking a friend through this, a person who's in pain, why should I? If, it, if doing the right thing doesn't lead to the reward, why do the right thing in the first place? I do right to please God, not to get from God. I do right because I care about the relationship. So let's circle back. This is what, this is what Jesus is doing with the two as he walks down the road. He's helping them to see bigger picture issues. He was walking with them through the bigger picture. He was bringing clarity to their clouded perspective. And this is what we do when we companion spiritually with another. We help them to take the piece of the puzzle they are holding in their hands, look at the box, look at the bigger picture, and locate themselves in the bigger story. We're always drawing eyes to the bigger picture, clarifying definitions where necessary. We lovingly expose false expectations and challenge unrealistic perspectives. And we enter the conversation with so much love. It may not have felt like love. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken you. What did we say he was really saying last week? I don't think you quite get it yet. We need someone in our lives who says, I don't think, you're, I don't think you quite get it yet. When someone is in the midst of suffering and confusion, it is so life-giving to help them locate what they might be going through in the bigger story of what God may be doing. And you know, more often than not, that big picture, that big picture isn't a, isn't a human history big picture, right? But we need to big, bring clarity to how this piece fits into their overall story. How does it fit into the years that God has given them? This thing that, that has happened is not random. It is not meaningless. It fits. It is purposeful and it is rich with meaning because it is part of the bigger thing that God is doing in you. It is not always about macro human history. Sometimes it's mapping a micro personal story. And in this way, we are finding our story in his story. And remember, there's a real difference between helping someone locate themselves in the greater story and just explaining things away or spiritualizing an event. Let's take a moment to just kind of tease out some distinctions. First, um, true companioning. When I'm really companioning with someone this way, it's rooted in sensitivity. I'm sensitive to their story. I treat it with great care. It's precious. I'm sensitive to the person. I treat them with dignity and respect. Mostly, I'm sensitive to the spirit. My listening ear is tuned into him. It reminds me of that prayer stance that we, that we talk about again and again. I look to God. I look to you. I look to God. I'm conscious in this conversation that it's not just the two of us talking, but God is speaking as well. So in true companionship, it's rooted in sensitivity, but it is also rooted in the art of suggestion. I suggest, hmm, might God be doing this? 
I wonder if what God might be up to in what's happening in your life. You see, I'm not the expert on someone else's journey. I'm a companion. And so in this role, I offer suggestions. I think I wonder becomes a key term. I wonder. I wonder if this may be what God is doing. Maybe another way to say it, um, we ask, do you think it is possible that God might be fill in the blank? And finally, true companioning is rooted in humility. We might offer deeper interpretations, but we let them make the applications. We, we, don't, we don't fill in all the dots. This is the point where we need to let God be God and not try to do his job for him. Let Jesus, let the Spirit continue to unpack with that person. So how else can we help someone else locate their story in the bigger picture? I wonder, have you, have you ever looked at Scripture to relate your story to a story you might find in the Bible? Maybe it's not a whole story, but a chapter. Maybe you're not real able to relate to everything in David's life, but, but, there's, but there's a season, or there's a season in Joseph's life, or Ruth's life, or Esther's life. Maybe it's just a page, but you're on that same page. You're walking that same page at that same moment. I mean, this is going to require some familiarity with the Bible, getting to know the characters of the Bible. But as we do, we start to find that the walk they're taking can be very similar to a particular walk that we are taking. You look at the story of the prodigal son. I'll give you three characters there. You, you, may, you may be the prodigal at this moment. You may be the one that has is, that is wandered away from the father. Or you've come back home and you're experiencing a grace that is absolutely undeserved. You may be the father in the story, the one who offers, the one who waits, the one who puts the bowl by the door and just says, I hope he comes back home. You may be the older brother, the older brother who says, I've done the right thing the right way. Why is he getting the reward? Why in the world are they holding a party for him? I did the right thing the right way. This isn't fair. This is a truly helpful practice to look at people in the Bible, to look at stories in the Bible and say, how does that story line up with my own story? Or if you're companioning with someone, how does their story line up with a particular individual in the Bible? I think as we do this, one thing that happens is we realize we are not alone. We are not the first ones to walk this ground. Other people have walked it as well. It also helps us to see what they did, good things they did as well as bad things they did. And maybe we can gain some insight into action we should take. But there's a deeper thing going on here. We get to see who they became. The life of formation is a life of becoming. We're becoming like Jesus. I've used this quote before. I love it. It says, in the end, what God gets out of ministry is you. Referring to people who are, who are involved in ministering, they might think ministry is about, you know, how big did the church grow and what buildings were built and all those things. That, and no, in the end, what God is looking for is the person you're becoming in the process. So it's not about your accomplishments, but your character. It's not about your deep insights, but your deeper inner being. It's not about your possessions, but it is about your soul gaining the world and yet losing your own soul. Bottom line, God is growing you. So take this back to walking with a friend. We might sensitively suggest a Bible character 
or a season in a Bible character's life that reminds us of them. This can be helpful to locate our puzzle piece in the bigger picture and to see that we are not victims of forces beyond our control, but valued participants in a much bigger story. So on this day, we celebrate moms. And I can't help but think that while this message is for all of us, this message is especially for you, mom. It is for all of us. And that's why I waited to say this at the end, because sometimes at the beginning you say, moms, we're talking to you today. All the guys go, click. This is for all of us. But mom, you, you, have, a, you have a particularly unique role. I really believe that, 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 that this is a big part of why God placed you in the life of your child. You're uniquely positioned to know your child, to know God, to know God's story, and to look at the box with your child and say, there it is. There you are. This is what God is doing in you. You're uniquely positioned to speak into your child's life. You are uniquely positioned to hear both the heart of your child and the heart of God and help them to see the beauty of the bigger picture. Accept this invitation from Jesus to be like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to walk with your child, listening, asking great questions, and drawing their eyes and their hearts to the pages of Scripture and the people of the Bible. Help them to see where this little piece, their piece, fits into the bigger picture of what God is doing in his universe. Father God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus and for the way he lived out his life on earth. I thank you for this walk that he took down this Emmaus road with these two people who had no idea who he was. I thank you that he was willing to slowly and patiently unscroll your word and to start walking through, pointing out, this is what you expected, but this is what life is really all about. Oh God, I pray that you would give us the ability to be faithful spiritual companions with each other, to in that same patient way, when our friends are going through times of pain and hardship and confusion, wondering how in the world this all comes together, that we would point their eyes toward Jesus, point their eyes toward Scripture, point their eyes toward the bigger picture, help them to see that they are not mere victims of circumstance, but they are valued participants in the greater story of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you enjoy your Mother's Day, and we will see you again next week.